This is episode 11 of the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast. The podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. And we are your hosts, Caitlin Dio and James Lee. Hello, church leaders of GNJ. James here again. For today's podcast, we called up Mike Bachman to talk to him about his church plant in Dallas, Texas. And man, have we a great podcast today. I want to ask you to listen to this podcast in its entirety because it will challenge everything you've ever heard or read about being in ministry with millennials. And if you like what you hear, be sure to sign up for Outbound, a day of learning on evangelism taking place at Bethany United Methodist Church in Wayne, New Jersey on Saturday, March 25th. Mike Bachman will be there giving workshops alongside Paul Nixon, author of Weird Church, Shannon Kaiser of Fresh Expressions, and many more real Greater New Jersey church leaders who are getting results in evangelism. So go to gnjumc.org or the link in the description to sign up today. Now, without further ado, here's our podcast with Mike Bachman. Mike is a founding pastor and community curator for Union Coffee, an innovative new church start in Dallas, Texas, where his congregation is primarily made up of church refugees in their 20s. Mike is the author of Flipping Church, How Successful Church Planters Are Turning Conventional Wisdom Upside Down, as well as a long list of curricula for Spark House Press and Cokesbury. His wife serves as the executive pastor at University Park UMC. So now, Mike, I hear you're originally from New Jersey. So how did you make your way to Texas? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I fell in love with a Texan, um, and uh, <laughs> that's, that's enough to do it. But yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. Went to, um, I grew up mostly at Bridgewater United Methodist Church. And, oh, okay. Uh, also First Methodist Church in Tuckerton and uh, served a church, North Hunterdon United Methodist Church, uh, for a little bit while I was in New Jersey as well. Awesome. So something really cool about your church, I, I read the book, Flipping Church, and it's, it's an awesome book. It's just a collection of all these different church planters and their stories. And uh, one thing that's really fascinating about the sections that you wrote were you really touch on the millennials, as they're called, right? I, I sometimes I take issue with that title, but but millennials, right? Young adults. Why do you think so many churches are failing to reach young adults? I mean, I think there's a a, a bunch of things. One is rooted in the way that we t- even talk about that, right? Like the notion of reaching someone suggests this notion of like reaching out and grabbing someone and pulling them into our world. You know, we, we sometimes talk in the church about mission fields and things like that. And the reality is that nobody wants to be considered a part of someone else's mission field, but they are happy to be called someone's neighbor. So that's one of the things that's been really important for us at Union is um, taking an approach that really values whatever it is that's inside of the people that we encounter. Um, that our assumption is, is that God is already at work in the neighborhood, that Jesus is already at work in the lives of the people who walk in our doors. And so like our mission statement at Union now is that we cultivate the divine spark in our neighbor for the good of Dallas and the world that it inspires. Um, and what that does is it, it creates an even playing field, right? I think in the church, we're really full of ourselves, um, quite honestly, right? Like, um, I'm a pastor, which means I have a degree called a master's of divinity. And like, how absurd is that? Because what it does is if we consider our relationship with God as like the most important thing, which, which I do consider it to be, and then I somehow have mastered this divine, or I have somehow like this extra access to God, then that's going to inherently create this power dynamic, even if only in my own head, that like I am more important or have something above the people that I'm trying to be in ministry with. 
And millennials, man, they sniff that out in a heartbeat. They know right away if someone thinks that, you know, they, if they're pitching something, if they're selling something, or if they think that they're somehow superior. So by having an attitude where, you know, we're trying to cultivate the divine spark that is in whoever they are, that, that, that I think levels it out. Because what I find is that when we look for God in others, they tend to see God in us. So tell us a little more about how Union Coffee got started. Yeah, it was born out of um, a simultaneous mixture of like um, intense frustration and overwhelming hope. How so? Uh, was sent away to this camp for pastors that the annual conference thought might be good at planning new churches. Um, was kind of disappointing because I felt like everything that was being presented about new church start model was what I call the get there before the Baptist model of church growth. Wow. Like you, you kind of like <laughs> go to the edge of suburban sprawl where everyone's moving into the neighborhood. You get there first. People will show up and come to your church because you were there first, and then you, you know, build up this um, this church. And, and the reality is that that's not really church growth. Um, it's important to do that. We need to go where people are, are moving, but at the end of the day, most of the people who are showing up there are people who are already attending a church at the place that they used to live. Of course. Um, and so it was really just kind of church transfer. And again, we need to do that. We need to be there. But it would really, didn't really feel like church growth to me, and so I started to explore, like, well— what might it look like to do ministry with people the church isn't reaching, especially with rising generations? And, and then there's this kind of realization that set in as I launched worshiping congregations along those lines in the past that, well, that's never self-sustainable. Um, so what would be an alternative revenue stream that we might be able to consider? And actually, one of the really formative experiences for me that helped shape Union was working at North Hundred and United Methodist Church up in New Jersey. Um, I served there as a transition pastor for a year and, um, you know, the first day I walked in, there were 14 in worship. Uh, no, I think there were 16 in worship and like four were related to me. Um, <laughs> and I was like, how is this place funding a full-time pastor? And it's because they operated a thrift shop out of the basement that provided a lot of revenue. And so with those experiences in the back of my mind, so I think, well, what's an entrepreneur venture that would fit with Ministry of the Rising Generations? And of course... You know, we cycled through a bunch of possibilities, but coffee shop just kept coming up over and over again. And then I found out that two other friends of mine had been dreaming out loud about a similar concept. And so we put our minds together and started to develop a proposal. And then we met with people who represented our target demographic and pitched it and changed it and pitched it and changed it and went through a rapid um, prototyping system. And, and then we started the Herculean effort of convincing the annual conference that it was a good idea. So how does Union Coffee operate on a weekly basis? Yeah, so our funding comes from a variety of sources, right? Like one is donations from our worshiping congregation. We have a little over 100 people who worship with us on any given week, all of whom are in their 20s, or the vast majority of whom are in their 20s. I'm kind of that old guy in the room every week at 38. Um, <laughs> and uh, 37, I think 38, something like that. You're 21, though, do you know? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Always cool, 21. Yeah. It's a podcast. I'm 22. It's great. See? Uh, <laughs> And like last year, they donated um, over $60,000, um, which when you think about the average 20-something, that's, that's really significant. And that's, that's also a significant factor when thinking about the long-term sustainability of the church, right? A far more financial value to an organization is, you know, a 22-year-old who's contributing somehow, you know, $500 a year than a 67-year-old who's giving $10,000 a year. We receive funding from that. We also um, do receive income, of course, from coffee sales, and we rent out rooms um, and receive revenue from that. We sell advertising on our screens, 
And then we also have individual donors who um, contribute to what we do. What's the leadership like? Is it a lot of millennials who are like helping with it all kind of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the scope of what we do at Union, it's way larger than what we're staffed for. Um, and that's because we are so actively involved in empowering others to take lead on ministry. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I have a 16 year old kid. I have two kids in high school. I am a whole bunch of life stages removed from the people that I'm in ministry with. I'm only able to do that because I have a team of people who are a part of our target demographic that meet with me every single week to plan out every aspect of the worship service, including the sermon. Um, you know, I've got people who lead um, a, a storytelling stage on Friday nights that, that I barely have to do anything for because it just runs on its own. I just support in. And we have a um, a women's group that's advocating for gender equity in the city of Dallas made up of all young professional women. And, you know, that got its start by members of the community. And I just kind of encourage and coach and support the people who lead it. And the things that we do are all led by, by others. Um, my role is facilitator and coach and curator. Um, and my most important question is, what do you need in order to be successful? For some pastors, that almost sounds like the dream, right? I think whenever I meet with clergy who are working in our really current churches, <laughs> right, it's, is that they, they, they feel like they have to do everything themselves, that there's not enough people to help out or to, to take on the initiatives and run with it. They wish that they could empower people to do it on their own, but yeah. they feel like they can't. Where, how do you get to that place where you are delegating, supporting, rather than running the whole show that if you're sick one Sunday, worship can't happen? Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was my story for a long time. And I think a lot of it was rooted in, like, I have some perfectionistic tendencies. And I think a lot and- of our clergy do. Yeah, and it's a lot easier if if you have those sensibilities, just like, you know, put it all together yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just a hell of a lot faster for me to just load the dishwasher than teach my eight-year-old how to load the dishwasher. Right. But at the end of the day, like actually investing in that time is so worth it. Um, I think a lot of it too is this whole masters of divinity thing, right? Like let go of control. Mm. Um, that's a really hard thing to do, but but I've learned more and more over time how to let go of control, allow balls to drop, you know, and when something doesn't work or it falls apart and I know those things, it's going to fall apart. There are times that I just let those balls drop and then I'll walk next to the person who's supposed to be handling that situation. I'll say, so, um, seems like there's some balls on the floor <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and they'll go, yep. And I'll say, wonder what we could have done to fix that <laughs> or prevent that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, those end up being incredible learning moments. And when things aren't perfect in the church, um, gosh, that makes space for people to feel like they can be themselves there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all that said, it's really hard. It's really hard to turn that over because everything that we're taught is contrary to that model. We're not taught collaborative work in seminary. We're not encouraged to do our board of ordained ministry paperwork with other people. Um, you know, we're not taught how to um, empower and trust others or even manage people, right? Like how crazy is it that we have a professional degree that doesn't teach us how to um, manage a staff of people or a team of volunteers where those basic practical skills are really helpful. So I think sometimes we do it on our own. Because we don't know how to do otherwise. Wow. We've never been taught. We've never seen it modeled. 
um, how could we expect our pastors to function in a different way? Right. I, I really loved your bits in the book about the rise of the highly almost consumer-based like mega church model where it's mm-hmm. like awesome lighting, right? You said you talk about the lighting is done by the guy who did the lighting for Beyonce or something. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, um, how the worship team has their album and you listen to it in the car. And um, it's, it's so funny because uh, I think a lot of churches who think that they need to be in ministry with young adults is they say, this is what we need to do, but, oh, we don't have the money for it. So with kind of with that whole dynamic in mind, how does a highly traditional church consisting of mostly people that are above 50 or 60, which is the many churches in our denomination and in our conference. How do, how do they be in ministry with young adults, say in their twenties and thirties? Yeah. So I think first is worth asking the question, what does it mean to be in ministry with them? Right. Um, if by being in ministry with them is to get them to come into the doors of your church and worship alongside of you on a Sunday morning the way that you've been worshiping for the past, you know, however many decades, the honest answer is you might not be able to. Mm. Um, and I think this is a this is just an honest reality that we need to we need to address, right? So, like a friend of mine is a pastor of a church not far from where we're located in Dallas. And he's doing amazing stuff. It's absolutely brilliant the kind of work that he's doing with this church building. You know, he's preaching sermons that I feel like totally speak to issues that speak to the heart of millennials. And I know 20-somethings that have gone to his church, really liked it there for a couple weeks, um, but then end up coming over to ours instead and sticking with us much longer than they stayed there. And the primary reason is, like, he's doing everything right. The congregation is doing everything right. But the reality is that 23-year-old goes into that building, looks around, and sees that there's no one in that space under the age of 40. Right. And so everything might be right and perfect, but lacking a a consistent core, lacking a critical mass of other folks that are roughly their age, the congregation will honestly just continue to struggle. Sometimes I, I think the ship has sailed. But if they explore more creative ways of what does it mean to be in ministry with, then it might broaden the picture a little bit. Mm. If those congregations that are made up primarily of folks in their 50s and 60s were to actually take the bold move of starting to get to know people in their neighborhood or in their 20s, um, if they you know, took them out for lunch and asked them lots of questions, um, and then if they started asking them for help, to do things that would make a positive difference in their neighborhood or to do things that have a creative and epic spark to them, um, then I think they might see some changes that take place. So you're kind of saying that the older generation really needs to um, kind of seek their help and engage them in the church. So maybe millennials are not being engaged in the church, that they're not staying for a long period of time? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a there's a lack of engagement. You know, we've got a lot of folks who are church refugees at Union, um, and uh, so yeah. Folks can you define up, that church refugees? That's a very yeah, interesting term. Yeah, so it's it's folks who like grew up in the church. Maybe they went to vacation Bible school and they went to all the youth group stuff and they went on mission trips, um, and uh, and then they're in their early career and they are not going to church. and And the reality is, is that we used to assume that they would return when they have kids. But studies, especially things coming out from like Robert Wuth now a couple years ago and some other places are suggesting like, no, they're not returning once they have kids. But I ask a lot of these refugees like, well, why aren't you involved in a traditional church anymore? And, and I hear really 
a lot of answers that seem to boil down to two primary reasons. Uh, let me to describe the, the church refugees as kind of the burned and the bored. Um, that some of them are ones who have been burned by the church. Mm. Um, maybe it's because they didn't fit in because of their um, sexuality or because of their political beliefs or because the, someone in the church did something inappropriate. But it's people who have been honestly hurt from the people they trusted. Um, and so some of it are the folks who are in that space. And then others are ones who um, are just bored. You know, they grew up, they asked certain questions about faith, and they heard particular answers from their from their congregation, their setting. And they went away to college, and they learned, you know, a broader critical pedagogy and started to understand things different ways and asked new questions and came to maybe different answers. And then they go back to a church like the one they grew up in, where they're asking new questions, but finding that the old the congregation is still asking the same questions and coming to the same answers they did when they were in high school. And so they feel like, I've grown up. I've kind of, my faith has developed to this other stage. But the church is still like back where I was in high school. Mm. And so they end up disconnecting simply because it, it, it doesn't feel like it's moving. It doesn't feel like it's growing. It doesn't feel like it's progressing along with them. Um, and so they start searching for meaning and, and community in other spaces. How do you draw millenn- uh, millennials to your church? Like, what do you guys do? The biggest thing is, is that we work really hard to make Dallas a better place. Mm. Um, so... You know, I see I see my role as twofold. One is taking care of the congregation, of the customers, of the people who are a part of union, right? But another part of my my job responsibility is to advocate for union's core values in the city of Dallas. So, what are some story so, examples of how union got involved in the community of Dallas? <laughs> uh, where to start? Um, you know, it starts for us with that cup of coffee. Someone walks into into Union and they buy a cup and we don't say like Jesus loves you. I put a little extra love in your cup today. Um, <laughs> instead, with a Texan accent and everything. <laughs> yeah, with some of that and everything. Um, you know, we instead um, we'll thank the customers for making a positive difference in our neighborhood. Right. So, like the cause that we've adopted right now is an organization called Wesley Rankin Center, which is doing work with families in West Dallas that are underserved, and about 200 of those families are facing eviction in the next month, mm. um, which will create a, a domestic refugee crisis in our own city as over 1,000 people are homeless within a stroke of a couple uh, of a signature on a piece of paper. Right. So, like when our customers come in and buy a latte right now, we say to them, thanks for supporting families in West Dallas facing eviction. Because 10% of our coffee sales go to, go to local causes. Wow. Um, and that in itself helps establish credibility. But we do it in more than just that. Like we're constantly nurturing positive causes. One of the things that we do that's got a lot of good attention and support is this thing called Capes for Kids. Um, which is once a month we convert our coffee shop into a cape making factory. We crank out as many kid sized capes as we can. And then we have a team of volunteers who dress up like superheroes and deliver those capes to kids with chronic illnesses. Um, And all of those capes have a little patch on the back that says cape powered by Union Capes for Kids in the United Methodist Church. In two years of doing that, we've delivered over a thousand capes to kids through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, through local hospitals. Um, A couple years ago, I served on the Mayor's Star Council for the city of Dallas, and that helped me understand the bigger picture of what are the key issues that are at stake in the city. And um, we host conversations about things that matter. Following the shootings of Philandro Castile um, last July, we hosted a conversation on race at Union at the same time that a protest was happening in downtown Dallas. Um, we had over 150 people in our space. Do not ask what fire code is. 
um, coming <laughs> to talk about race. And it was honest and it was painful. And um, poli- uniform police officers showed up um, and stood on our stage and said things like, we just want others to know that like we're not okay with this happening around our country either. Wow. And it was in the midst of that night that a sniper um, began firing on law enforcement officers in Dallas. And we got word where we were. We stopped um, our conversation and strangers hugged each other and we wept for our city and we prayed. And then we ditched all of our plans for worship for the next month. And we talked about race and we talked about privilege and we talked about how it is that, that we can be um, active in making and having Dallas respond differently to tragedy than the way other cities did. Um, and if you, if you paid attention, Dallas did respond differently. There were no riots. Um, there was no, there was nothing that was overturned. Um, there were, there wasn't unrest. Um, the, we saw, um, some of the best dialogue take place that has happened in the city of Dallas for decades. Wow. And so as union is looking to expand to additional locations right now, which we're in the process of all the places that we're looking at are neighborhoods that came to us. Um, are places where colleges or, in some cases, the mayor's office approached union and said, we need union in this neighborhood. Would you be willing to go there? Wow. That's, that, that's what it means for us to engage. And I think that's part of what draws young people into our church is that we have the credibility. Thank you so much for sharing all those stories. It's interesting that in none of that, at least from what I heard, is there a mention of Jesus? You, you were kind of poking at it in the very beginning, but... Uh, where does Jesus come into the conversation for you and union? Jesus is always a part of who we are. We never shy away from our identity in that way. It's just not our first foot forward because we know that that's a trigger for a lot of people. So people who come into union don't, you know, can't be around there long without figuring out the whole Jesus thing is a part of it too, mm-hmm. um, right? So like my card has Reverend Mike Bachman on it, and you know that helps establish things pretty quickly and. You know, we have worship gatherings that meet in the coffee shop itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's what we progress into. It's a long game. You know, I'm really not interested in ministry or evangelism with, you know, quote, low hanging fruit. So, like, our storytelling stage is a really important place for that because um, you'll hear stories on a Friday night. It's completely uncensored. So, you hear stories on a Friday night you would definitely not hear in a church on a Sunday morning. Um, but that gives us the credibility so that. When we do tell stories of faith and discipleship on that same stage uh, to people who show up in the room that would never darken the doors of a church, mm. we have the opportunity to preach to people who don't go to church. And, uh, and so we do things like that. Like, but yeah, Jesus is never far from my lips. Um, <laughs> is never far from our space. Um, and I was just like, you have adulting 101. I love that. Actually, because I know my friends are like, we're like, adulting sucks. Like how, like, I don't want to be an adult. Like, and I love it. I just like look this up and I'm like, we need this everywhere. Can you record this and like have it live streaming or something for like people in New Jersey who don't know how to be adults like me? Like, (laughs) I love that you guys offer this and you offer programs that are designed, um, you know, for young adults. We just listen to the folks in our community and, and, you know, when they identify a particular need, like adulting sucks it and <laughs> I don't know how the hell to like buy a car without getting ripped off. I know. And I have, you know, 
no idea how to talk about sex with the person that I'm dating or, you know, I don't know when to decide when to get married or whether to just, you know, like dump this person because it's not going anywhere. Um, or just like cluelessness about taxes and all finances really in general. Um, you know, we just heard about it. And so we surveyed the community. It was a really simple survey. It had three questions. One was, what aspect of adulting um, do you suck at that you want to learn more about? <laughs> what aspect of adulting are you so good at that you could teach others? Hmm. And the third question was, if you had a room full of people in front of you to receive whatever it is you had to say, what would you say to them? Um, and that third one was more to get a sense for the people themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but that second one was really interesting. Like one of the classes, I think it's the last one that we have in our lineup for the spring. Um, and this is all an experiment. We have no idea if it's going to work. The first class was this past Monday. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the last one we have this spring, the class is, is how to be a boss bitch. And like, I don't even really understand what that means. <laughs> <laughs> person I know is amazing is the kind of person that I want more people to be like mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and and she said that like she knows how to do that as an adulting skill and we're like cool teach it whatever I don't know what that means <laughs> and I was like can guys come too and she said oh absolutely there's a boss bitch inside of a lot of guys <laughs> great <laughs> I still don't know what we're talking about but make it happen <laughs> You need like a webinar that and like I would pay just to have a webinar. There's a market for that here in yeah. New Jersey, just saying. <laughs> the boss bitch market is developing. <laughs> I want to go a little back to the part in the book where you talk about a lot of these kind of these mega church, non-denominational churches that seem to be booming with 20 and 30 year olds have very black and white theology, right? You say like neo-Calvinistic theology is very prominent. Why? Why do you think... Wesleyan theology is not prominent in those circles. And where is Wesleyan theology in the landscape of faith for young adults? Well, I think first it's worth identifying why there is a strong appeal, I think, to a lot of the black and white neo-Calvinistic theology and approach, right? And the reality is, is that we have, we have a generation that has had all of the rule books thrown out, mm. Um, right. Like there used to be a story in America that you lived into. It's a story that was like you grew up, you learned what your parents trade was, and then you lived into that trade. Mm -hmm. You know, it opened up a bit. And the story was you grow up, you graduate from high school, or perhaps you graduate from college. And shortly thereafter, you get married to someone, you start a career that you will likely hold for the rest of your life. And you start having kids and you're underway and you've checked pretty much all of those boxes by the time you're 22. That story has been thrown out. Yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> there, which means, right, like that, that story doesn't stand anymore. And so uh, we're experiencing a generation that, that doesn't have a playbook to follow. And so in the midst of that grand uncertainty, I think there is something comforting about someone with all confidence standing up on a stage with a light shining on them, generally pretty attractive person, male and authoritative, saying like, no, 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 this is what you do. This is right, this is wrong, this is the path that's going to lead you in a good direction. There's something that's really comforting about that. Hmm. And I think, you know, we ought not just dismiss that or miss that reality. And I think, I think one of the things we, sh we struggle with and one of the reasons why Methodist, a lot of Methodist churches haven't taken hold is that we just say, it's going to be okay. 
without offering any sort of guidance or conditions or direction. We just, or challenge. Because that's one of the things that I've also learned about millennials and part of why, you know, I've been kind of forced into a position of mobilizing people to do things is that if you don't expect something of them, if you don't challenge them to something, you communicate to them that what you're offering doesn't matter. Wow. Um, things that are hard, things that are difficult, things that come with a cost, they instinctively know are the things that have value to them. Mm-hmm. Right. CrossFit is killing it with millennials. <laughs> right. Uh, and they set a really clear expectation. Right. Um, and a really clear cost. Like I've been to those workouts. They're hell. And that's just the warm up. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's <laughs> but that then communicates with people like, oh, this matters because it's challenging me. It's pushing me. And that's where I think embracing a truer sense of Wesleyan theology is more significant with millennials. Right. Because because what a truest sense of expression of Wesleyan theology and practice isn't just this notion of like, it's all going to be okay. There's grace. It's also a sense of like personal holiness and, and a consistent challenge to, to be better and to take the things that you believe and put it into concrete action. Right. Um, which is something that liberals and conservatives can both hold to. And when I look at churches that are effectively, Wesleyan churches that are effectively in ministry with rising generations, places like Urban Village Church in Chicago, places like The Gathering um, that Matt Miofsky puts together, places like Impact Church in, in Atlanta, right? Like these are all churches that, yes, are, are overwhelmingly Methodist in their theology and scope. Um, they're very heavy on grace. They also consistently challenge their people. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about when you say for a generation raised on Google, uh, questions are currency. Um, mm-hmm. You write in your book uh, that Ewan's Creed is a series of questions. You know, can you speak a little bit more about this? Yeah. So, and this 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 helps uh, uh, reveal, I think, some of the thinness or the pass-through rate of some of the more conservative evangelical big box churches, right? Is that... Um, that all of them say, like, questions are welcome. We would love for you to come with your questions. But then written in, like, a little footnote that they never show to anyone is, <laughs> as long as you come to the right answers. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Wow. That's so, so true. A lot, of, a lot of the people that we end up with are folks who were a part of a strong evangelical culture, were encouraged to ask questions, but then they found themselves landing in, like, this different space theologically or whatever. And then there's this slow... Um, unofficial shunning that started to take place mm. by the community that just didn't really know what to do with them. Right. Didn't know what to do with them when they came to a conclusion that like, you know what, I think sex outside of marriage may not be inherently wrong. Or when they came to a conclusion that started to think that like, you know what, I don't, I don't think homosexuality is inherently wrong. And not all of them are sexual ethics, right? They might've come to a conclusion of thinking like, well, I, gosh, I think, maybe women should be like pastors or, you know, I, I hear a lot of these conversations and then they, uh, the, the, these other congregations don't know what to do with that. And then that's where I think the Wesleyan system of, of theology is way more helpful, right? Because I think there's a lot more comfort with question. There's a lot more comfort with dissent. You know, we have this beautiful um, sermon of a uh, Catholic spirit that John Wesley wrote mm-hmm. um, that allows for, for dissent within the body itself as, as a valuable thing and doesn't make us any less a brother or sister. So I think, I think questions are in, in, intensely valuable. But we also get nervous about questions because when you honestly ask questions, you can't control the results. 
Awesome. Thank you, Mike, once again for coming on the podcast. We're excited that you're coming to New Jersey for the Outbound event on March 25th. Uh, one of your workshop titles is Do This One Thing and Millennials Will Flock to Your Church. And I find that kind of interesting title, especially after our conversation today. But can you give us a little sneak peek to what this one thing might be? Yeah, so um, it's I stole that from a friend of mine, Rich Havard, who works in um, Chicago. Uh, it's a total clickbait title. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it worked. It's working it's for us. <laughs> uh, there's not one thing to do, but it's to point out the the fact that there is this you know absurd amount of people who write about like this is why millennials are leaving the church, um, or you know this is what's drawing people millennials into the church. And Oh, it just happens to be the thing that I'm really good at. Right. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, and I just kind of want to stand there and call bullshit on all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that anything that I'm going to offer about ministry with millennials is so intensely rooted on my own experiences and my own agenda. Um, and, and I just want to own that and say that out loud in front of a room full of people um, and as a way of discouraging them from taking too seriously any one article or any one person, because a generation is so diverse in the way it encounters thing, it encounters life, let alone something as grand as you know the divine or the transcendent other or God or Jesus or like any of those things. So you know, to, to boil it down to any one thing or any short list of things is, is frankly absurd. Um, uh, so I just kind of want to talk about these are the things that we've learned in our particular context, and hopefully you'll figure out a way to do it better than us. Well, I could tell you right now, there are several people that has already signed up for this workshop, so the clickbait must have worked. I'm looking forward <laughs> to disappointing all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. So we have one last question that we ask all of our guests on the Uncovered Dish. And if, you know, from New Jersey to Texas, I'm actually kind of curious what your answer would be. But if you had one food choice, that uh, one type of food you can have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, it's absolutely pizza, right? <laughs> and, and I say that as, you know, someone who's a low-level immigrant because I'm from New Jersey and I live in Texas. Um, <laughs> they don't... I'll just say, like, they don't understand pizza out here. Um, it's sad. Um, it's really sad. The crust is like a cracker. Um, the sauce is like too, I don't know, they put like bay leaves in it or something. It's bitter. It's wrong. It's just wrong. So we'll make sure uh, we have so, a welcome pizza for you at Outbound then on March 25th, right? <laughs> I will love that. Um, every time I'm in New Jersey, I make, I, I eat basically nothing but pizza, breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, whenever I'm home. So uh, I'm looking forward to that when I'm around. Um, savor it. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. All right. Again, that was uh, Mike Bachman, the founding pastor and community curator for Union Coffee in Dallas, Texas. You can contact them at uniondallas at gmail.com. Find out more information at uniondallas.net. And if you ever happen to be in Dallas, Texas, be sure to give Mike all of the Uncovered Dish love. Thanks, Mike, for being on the show. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you. It. Yep. Bye. Take care. Bye now. 
Thank you again for tuning in today's podcast. If there are any topics you'd like us to uncover or any comments for us, you can email them to podcast at gnjumc.org. We will be posting a new podcast every other Wednesday. So if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to be up to date on the latest episodes. We'll talk to you soon.